All right, good morning. Well, welcome here. My name is John. If I haven't had the chance to meet you, um, I have the privilege of being one of the pastors here at Reality, along with Mitch, and uh, my wife, Sarah, who leads the kids' ministry downstairs. So we're very grateful that you're here. And uh, if you're new, a uh, special welcome to you, and I'd love to just come, I hope you come say hi after, get a chance to meet you and hear uh, how you found out about this place. We are uh, today continuing on in a series that we've been in after Easter last year. We started a new series, and I would almost say like a new season of our church, actually, as we're uh, exploring some, some places where God is inviting us into. And so we started by looking at the Paul's letter to the Galatians. And uh, so we spent about 10 weeks in that series, and uh, we did a bunch of, I would say, ideological heavy lifting. I think for most of us, maybe this is the way I would describe what we've done, for most of us, when we're making decisions that we all have in our lives, maybe it's like, should I date this person? Should I marry this person? Should we have kids? Or there are decisions about, should I take this job? Uh, You know, how should we spend our money? Kind of these big decisions, we look into the, the foreground of our lives the information that we have in front of us, and we make uh, choices based on that information. But what we uh, fail to see often is that there's lots going on in the background that guides us into those decisions. Some big ideas that we have in the background that that shape our lives. And so what we're doing, or what we did in this first 10 weeks of that series, is we took that perspective on faith to go back and look at some of those things behind our our minds, behind the way that we make decisions about the things in front of us, and ask some of those big ideological questions. And so there's three big ideas, I would say, that we're changing it, or that we're, we're, we're moving our focus. The first is what grace means. So we looked at that through the first part of, of the series on Galatians, and we'll come back to that in a couple weeks. The second thing that we talked about is a practice of community hermeneutic. How do we read the Bible together as a community? And we'll actually be doing that together in January. So if those words are completely foreign to you, no problem. We're going to come back to them, and we're actually going to practice it together in January. And then finally, uh, maybe the big thing that we're trying to change is moving from a bounded church to a Jesus-centered church, from a bounded church to a Jesus-centered church. And so today, as we kick back into this series, we're going to spend about another 10 weeks in Galatians, going through the second half of the book. I want to do two things. I want to first remind us of what what that idea means. What does it mean to be Jesus-centered? We have new people here. We have people who have been away for a couple weeks. We We haven't talked about this for about six weeks. And so I want to just remind us of what is this idea of being Jesus-centered. And then secondly, I want to talk about how Jesus helps to create these types of communities. I think that a centered, a Jesus-centered way of thinking about things is actually what is most true to what uh, Jesus is doing in the Gospels. So in order to do the first part, I want to introduce you to somebody. He's the person who came up with this idea of applying centered sets to uh, Jesus, or to to, uh, church. And his name is Paul Hebert. Here's his picture. Uh, sweet typewriter that he has here. He is, uh, um, as you might guess by his last name, he is a Mennonite dude. And uh, he was uh, born to missionary parents in India. So that's where he spent the first part of his life. And then he came and went to school in North America. And as he did, he came back to North America, he started asking questions about the faith that he had received as a kid. And he, he still wanted to follow Jesus, but he had some, some issues. And he illustrates the issues that he had with a story. So I want to read it for us today. 
He says this, imagine for a moment Papaya, an Indian peasant. Now, I just need to pause here for a second. I am probably not saying this person's name correctly. In fact, I'm almost going to say 100% that I'm not saying. I tried to Google how to say this name in Hindi, and I just kept being like, do you want to learn how to say papaya in Hindi? And I was like, no, I want to learn how to say this name in Hindi. But we're stuck with papaya. I apologize. Um, so for a moment, imagine this person, papaya. He's an Indian peasant, and he's returning to his village after a day work in the fields. His wife is preparing the evening meal. So to pass the time, he wanders over to the village square. There he notices a stranger surrounded by a few curious seekers. Tired and hungry, he sits down to hear what the man is saying. For an hour, he listens to the message of a new God, and something he hears moves him deeply. And Later, he asks the stranger about this new way, and then, almost as if by impulse, he bows his head and prays to this God who is said to have appeared in the human form of Jesus. Now, he, he doesn't quite understand it all. As a Hindu, he worships Vishnu, who in, incarnated himself many times as a human, animal, or fish to save humankind. Papaya also knows that many of the 330 million uh, Hindu gods. But the stranger says there is only one God, and this God has appeared among humans only once. Moreover, the stranger said that this Jesus is the Son of God, but he says nothing about God's wife. It's all very confusing to him. Papaya turns to go home, and a new set of questions flood his mind. Can he still go to the Hindu temple to pray? Should he tell his family about his new faith? And how can he learn more about this Jesus? He cannot read the few papers the stranger gave him, and there is no other Christians within a day's walk. And who knows when the stranger will come again? So this is the story, but here's the big question that propelled Hebert's search for the rest of his life. He asked this question. Can Papaya become a Christian? Can Papaya become a Christian? Now, Hebert observed the missionaries that he worked with giving two answers that were both unsatisfactory for him. The first is this. The first set of missionaries would say, no, 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 Papaya cannot become a Christian. He doesn't know enough. He's not orthodox, for example. He doesn't have all the beliefs that we would want a Christian person to have. He's basically still a Hindu. And so, no, he can't. And he's also not practicing the right behaviors, right? He's thinking of still going back to the Hindu temple to pray he can't read his Bible. So, no, no, he cannot become a follower of Jesus. And Hebert sort of agreed. He thought that, that beliefs and behavior were both important parts of following Jesus. But listen to what he says. Doesn't this way of thinking about becoming a Christian make it nearly impossible for people without a Western Christian upbringing to be saved. He was raised in a time where, you know, most of the people would know the story of the Bible. And he's saying, but a person like Papaya, he's not in that situation. And doesn't it make it almost impossible for a person like Papaya to receive and to learn to follow Jesus? So he didn't like that answer. On the other hand, Hebert met missionaries who would say the opposite. They'd say like, yeah, Papaya, he, this guy is basically a follower of Jesus here. And maybe it was because they were very relativistic, which means that they're like, you know, Hindus, Christians, it's all the same. 330 million gods plus one. What's the, what's the big deal, right? We just have one more, now he's in. Or he observed that sometimes these missionaries wanted to just send good stats back to the people where they came from. So they'd say, you know, we want to tell people that Papaya became a Christian so that our mission continues to get supported here. For whatever reason that they said it, Hebert also found that that answer was not a satisfactory for one, he, uh, one for him either. And he said this, If we say yes, Papaya can become a follower of Jesus, are we not in danger of preaching a cheap gospel that leads to Christian nominalism? 
basically we're just watering things down so far that people are invited in and then there's no sense of growth, there's no sense of movement to the front. So, among his many other talents, Hebert was a brilliant, brilliant guy. He studied math and he came across some theories that really helped him characterize what's wrong with this missionary experience. And I'm going to draw them up here for us. So he said the first group of missionaries that he was talking about, they were operating in math out of what's called a bounded set. A bounded set way of thinking. And so basically this idea is that you create a boundary and you have some things that are in and some things that are out. And so in math theory, for example, you can have a bounded set. The lowest number can be, has to be greater than 5 and the highest number less than 37. So a number like 25 would be in, a number like 54 would be out. In math, this is the way that they think about numbers. And he observed that the church does this as well, does exactly the same thing. So we create boundaries. Usually there are two things. There are behaviors and beliefs. And he says we create a boundary that shows us who's in and who's out. And so maybe it's something like you prayed to receive Jesus, or you were baptized, or you read your Bible, whatever these types of things are, you're a member of a church, they help us show who is in and who is out. Now, there's lots of strength in the church. Number one is it's clear. It's super clear who's in and out, if we have a really good, solid line that we understand. The second is this, it's replicable. So we could take it, if we, if we were able to figure out what these boundaries were for every Christian here, then we could take that to every church in Vancouver. We could take that to India, as the missionaries tried to do. We could take it all over the world. And every person uh, would be able to, we'd be able to know who is in and who is out. So there's some really big strengths to this. It unites people. People know who's in and out. But he, uh, Hebert also said there's some really big weaknesses. And I want to talk about three of them. The first uh, is this. He said it's, it turns into, a, these are my words, not his, but but. If you have a bounded set church, what it does is it turns into a colonizing church, a colonizing Christianity. And Hebert was not only a mathematician and a missionary kid, but he was a student of history and an anthropologist. This guy is brilliant, studied so many different things. And what he said is when he looked through history and he looked at the church through history, what different churches do is they take things that are good, that probably should be true about every church and every person who follows Jesus, but what we start to do is we add on things from our own culture and from our own moment in time. And we thicken this line. And so there's all sorts of different ways that people do this. And Hebert was a, a part of a missionary movement from the Mennonites. And if you don't know about Mennonites, uh, one of the things about them is that they don't like dancing. Maybe one could say they fear dancing. And so here's two characteristics. So dancing is out. Okay? But cheapness is in. Okay? <laughs> So if you're not familiar with Mennonites, that's totally fine. So there's the joke, there's a, how do you put a Mennonite into an existential crisis? You offer them free dancing lessons. And it, it pits these two things against each other, okay? So, Mennonites, you imagine this, they go to a place like Africa, they go to a place like India, what's, they observe people tribal dancing. It's part of their culture, it's also part of their spirituality. What are they going to be afraid of? Well, well if you are doing cult- that cultural dancing, you are out. And they would take their personal perspective, their cultural perspective, and they would, try to, they would colonize people. And Hebert says when we look across history, we see this happening all over the place. 
that bounded set Christianity creates colonizing Christianity. The second thing is that it creates wounding Christianity. Listen to Mark Baker, what he says, who's, he's a, he's a modern-day commentator on Hebrew. While many people appreciate the clarity of a bounded church and the security that it offers, the boundary lines injure both those who are excluded and the insiders that they exclude. It hurts both the people inside and outside. The boundary lines hinder transparency because members find it difficult to express their struggles honestly because they're afraid of losing their standard, or standing in the church. So if you're inside, if you're one of these exes, you're afraid to be honest if you're struggling, to be transparent with people because you know that you could get kicked out of the group. He continues on. <clears throat> Outsiders experience the pain of not fitting in. And this is maybe the most clear statement. Bounded churches are characterized by unity based on uniformity, not by grace. Strict but often superficial ethics, conditional acceptance, shame, fear, lack of transparency, and self-righteousness. Because I know I'm okay because I'm on the inside. And I can put people on the outside. And of course I'm on the inside. If I'm part of the first people that's creating the boundaries, of course I'm going to be on the inside. So, colonizing Christianity, wounding Christianity, and then third is stagnant Christianity. If the goal is to get inside of the boundaries, if you're so concerned about the boundary lines, whatever those might be for your community or your church, then the goal really becomes just to get inside. And so what happens is that people focus on those things. So we have beliefs and behaviors that bring people inside. And you say, if you have enough of those, that's the goal. You fit in with everybody else, but there's actually no more movement. And what happens is, after a period of time, you stagnate. So in the church, it's like, I know enough now. I know enough about the Bible. I've done some classes, something like that. And my behavior fits in. You know, I might not be the, you know, the most holy Christian here, like I'm not super saiyan, you know, when I get to church my hair doesn't turn yellow, but like I'm average, that's good, I'm here. And we stagnate out as Christians, we go into coast mode. So in reaction to this, the second group of people, the second group of missionaries were pursuing what's called a fuzzy set. Let me just actually ask a question, how are we doing with this? Does it make sense? Okay? Some nods? Okay, good. Hopefully this is warming you up and reminding you of, of some things that we talked about. So the second group of people, what we do is we get rid of the boundaries. So we say no boundaries. There's nobody who's out. Everybody is just in. And this is great in one way. Everyone's excluded, included, sorry, which is great. Or I guess everyone's excluded. It doesn't really matter. There's no boundaries. <laughs> included, excluded, hey, whatever, you know. Um, and uh, there's no lines. But, but what happens is we, we get rid of one problem, which is, th which is this boundary, and we create new ones. And, and let me just, again, list three problems of this. The first is what I call Vancouver Christianity. And so, I love Vancouver, but basically what we do as Christians is we just baptize Christian culture, or Vancouver culture, and we call it Christianity. And rather, the, the big problem with this is that rather than Jesus being at the center of this community, tolerance, for example, becomes the center of this community. And hey, I'm not about Christians being intolerant. That's not the point here. The point is what stands at the center. Can't stand at the center. It's actually our stories that do. And we try to baptize all of our stories and where we come from. So it's a Vancouver Christianity. And it doesn't have space for a Jesus who says, I bid you to come and die and find that you will truly live. That, that has no place in this kind of church. The second is it's an unsure Christianity. You know, some people, I think, are fuzzy 
because you've moved from a bounded set and you don't know where to go, so you become fuzzy. And there can be a true humility there, which says, like, I, I understand that actually I don't know everything. I don't have the perfect set of beliefs about Jesus. And so I don't want to be bounded. And so what ends up happening is you turn towards being fuzzy. But it, that can actually end up with a complete relativism that we saw with some of the missionaries in India that Hebert is talking about, where just like anything goes. Uh, um, Mark Baker calls this a whateverism. You're just like, whatever, I don't know, it's good for you, it's good for you, it's good for me, it's good for me. And he says this, if a bounded set church creates bruised fruit, what a fuzzy set church does and what whateverism creates is no fruit. There's no sense of growth, no sense of Jesus' words, come and follow me. So we have Vancouver Christianity, unsure Christianity, and then the final I'm going to call uninterested Christianity. You know, some people who are fuzzy, I found, they actually are just uninterested in Jesus. But it's, it's, it's very hard, actually, to be fuzzy about the things that you care about. Let me give you an example. Let's imagine you came uh, after church and you said, Hey, John, I want to go, let's go for Cambodian food. What's your favorite Cambodian dish? I'd be like, uh, I don't know. Be like, do you like Khmer noodles? And I'd be like, sure, I, mean, I don't know, whatever. And you said, like, do you like the Cambodian place, you know, by Granville, the Four Horsemen, or do you like the one on commercial better? And all of my answers would basically be something like Toby on The Office, you know, where he's like, uh, uh, uh. I just don't, it's not that I hate Cambodian food. I know nothing about it. I'm sure I'd love it. If you'd want to invite me, let's go. I'm happy to try anything. But I'm, I'm very uninterested. I have no formed opinions because I know nothing about it. I don't care. Now, imagine you came to me and you said, John, what's your favorite Chinese dish? Let's go for food. First, I'd say to you, okay, first, that's a reckless question. What are you talking? Let's, let's narrow down on what we're talking Are we talking about Hong Kong cafe food? Are we talking about dim sum? You know, are we talking about, like, northern Chinese food, Sichuan food, like, what, Taiwanese food? Let's get, let's get narrow it down here on what we're talking about. Then we can get to some real answers. Now, why would I become more knowledgeable and passionate and annoying at that moment in time? It's because we're talking about something that I love. And it doesn't mean I need to be intolerant of you and what you love. But it's very, very hard, actually, to be completely fuzzy about the things that we love. And some people, I recognize, that we go into this place of fuzziness, or we call it deconstruction. And I'm not down on deconstruction. We'll talk about that more later. But I'm just saying it's actually a guise just for being uninterested in Jesus. And what I've found in my own life and in other people's lives, too, is that it's not that you're passionate about nothing. It's just that you've lost passion about Jesus. Maybe it's Khmer noodles. Maybe it's Chinese food. Maybe it's keto Maybe it's feminist literature. Maybe it's your house. I don't know what it is, but you're passionate about something. And that thing you're not fuzzy about. So here's the thing. Even though these two perspectives are actually different, they look very, very different, they're actually united by one thing. They're at the ends, two ends of the same spectrum, which is that they're both obsessed with lines. They're both obsessed with boundaries. On one side, it's about getting the boundary right. And on the other side, it's about getting rid of the boundary. And so they're actually focused on exactly the same thing. And um, I, I'll just say this. I think for some of us, and for Hebert, this is where he was at, and I recognize this in my own life too, is that if these are the only two options, this is a pretty despairing place to be. And you kind of go back and forth. And so for some of us, we grew up in Christianity that's like this, from our parents' church or whatever. And, and we, don't, we know some of the boundaries. We've challenged them. We've been hurt by them. And so we, we move here. But this is also a place that's just a place without passion. And maybe we want to keep our faith in Jesus. 
but we find ourselves uninterested. And maybe you bounce back and forth, back and forth. And I'll just say from my own life, if this is the only two options, it ends up being a pretty despairing place to be. And so Hebert, from math theory, came up, he said there's another way of just thinking about it that doesn't involve just focusing on the boundaries. That's not the primary thing. And this is called, in, in math theory, a centered set. And in a centered set, there's two things that are really, really important. The first is what's at the center. This is supposed to be a crown. I practiced it yesterday for like an hour. This is, this is as good as it gets, people, right here, okay? And, and in a centered church, what matters is what's at the center. And this is the person for us of Jesus. And what we want to do, see, this is clear about boundaries. This is unclear about everything. For us, what we want to be in a center church is clear about the person of Jesus. That he stands at the center of everything that we have. And the second thing is this. We've got people who are coming in from all over, from different places, different perspectives, different church backgrounds, different ethnicities, different stories. For, For Hebert... In a centered set, what matters is not your proximity. It doesn't matter how close you are. It doesn't matter if you're here or if you're here or if you're here. It matters, what matters is the direction. Which direction is your life going at the present moment? And so he would say, you could take two people who are the same distance from from Jesus. Maybe they're both, you know, people who have attended church their whole life. They've done all the things that you would think about for boundaries. They've been baptized, they read their Bible every day, you know, they pray to receive Jesus, whatever it is. They invite friends to church, I don't know. But he could say one person could be moving towards Jesus. They're saying yes to whatever Jesus is calling them to in their life right now. And one person is not. As I tried to say it last week, they're baptized into a different story. Their heart is in a different place. The thing that they're focused on, the thing that they're passionate about is something completely different. And so what becomes important in this group is movement. Which direction are you headed? Are you headed towards or away from Jesus wherever you are? Maybe, you know, you're in leadership at our church or at another church, but actually your heart is focused, like I said, maybe on your next bonus, on the remodeling that you're doing on your house, on your profile, on social media. Maybe you just wandered in here today. It's the first time you've ever been in church. First of all, welcome if that's you and you don't know anything about this, you're not sure why you're here, you're not even sure about this church or these people or Jesus, but there's something magnetizing, and so you took the first step towards him. And Hebert would say, ultimately, that's the important thing. Getting clear about this person, Jesus, and then movement towards him. And I think, Hebert thought that this this centered group best characterized what's talked about in the Bible when they use the word church, or gathering of people of God. And he thought, and I agree with him, and he thought about that, he thought this for, because, he, because of stories like we're going to talk about today, where Jesus chooses his closest followers. So let's look at a passage together, and then we're going to look at some of the stories that are in this passage to illustrate how this plays out in different people's lives. Matthew 10, verse 2. It starts by saying, these are the names of the twelve apostles. So this number is really, really important. In the Hebrew scriptures, in the story of the Old Testament, God chooses this group of people, this this nation of people, and he says, you are going to be my people. I'm going to bless you that you may bless the world. And he splits them into 12 tribes, into 12 groups. And so when Jesus is coming and doing this later on in the story, he's doing something that's blatantly symbolic here. And Jesus does things, he never does things without intention. He's trying to say, this is the way I'm now going to organize my people as moving forward. And so we're going to ask the question, what does it look like? What will Jesus' family look like? 
Does it most look like someone who's bounded, who's a group of people that were bounded, who are fuzzy, or who are centered? And so let's look at, at the names of the people he invites. It says, first, Simon, who is called Peter, and Andrew, his brother, James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, Philip and Bartholomew, Thomas and Matthew, the tax collector, James, the son of Alphaeus and Thaddeus, Simon the Zealot, and Judas Iscariot, who also betrayed him. Now, maybe some of you were like, boy, you had me with the diagrams, and now you just gave me a very boring list of of people. It's like the worst part of reading the Bible. Um, And I wouldn't necessarily disagree. But one of the things we learned in the series on Galatians is that behind every name, and behind every name in this group of people is a story. And it's a story that matters. If you remember how Paul starts Galatians, he starts by telling people's stories. A lot of us, when we think of Galatians, we think of theology, theology, theology. For Paul, he says grace actually always takes place in your story. And so your stories matter. And we have to get really good at articulating and narrating our stories and listening to other people's stories as a place that we can find grace. And so for these folks, let's look at just four of their stories to understand where grace is taking place and what kind of a community that Jesus wants to create. The first person I want to look at is Matthew. He has a little uh, tag at the end of his name. It says the tax collector. And so to understand Matthew's story, we have to zoom out a little bit to understand what's going on at this moment in history. So God's people, the Jewish people, are in Israel at the time when Jesus comes. So God's people are in God's place, but... They are not a sovereign nation. They are being ruled over by the Roman government. And this was a big problem for them. They wanted to be a sovereign place, a nation with God as their king. And so the question of the day was, what do we do about this? What do we do about this Roman ruling power? And they had different people had different perspectives on what to do. Now, the Romans were really, really smart. They wanted to take over the whole known world, but they were just a pretty small country. And so they realized, if we're going to take over the whole known world, we can't just spread ourselves super thin, or we'll be vulnerable to attack. So what they did is that they would pay people off in every country that they visited. So they would pay, make puppet leaders. So for example, Herod, if you know the story of Jesus, he's a puppet leader. They, he's a Jewish person that they paid off to be their puppet there. Then they would pay off armies. And the third group of people that they would pay off are bureaucrats, people like tax collectors. That's what Matthew does. Is he's a representative of the Roman oppressing power for the Jewish people. So his job would be to collect the tax. So he would go to the homes uh, of people and he would say, okay, you have three people in your household, $1,000 each. That's how much you owe the Roman government to continue their military occupation and their war machine going on to take over other countries and continue to, continuing to keep the people here oppressed. So you can imagine that's already not a good vibe. Right? that Matthew's putting out. The people didn't like him. But there's a second fact we need to know about what tax collectors did. Tax collectors not only collected money for the Roman government, but they were able to collect a service fee for themselves. And they could collect, like it's like going to an ATM, you know? Or uh, they could collect however much they wanted. They could just arbitrarily inflate the numbers if they, if they liked, or lower them if they were kind. It's kind of like if you go to uh, go out for dinner right now in Vancouver, where you're like, oh, 20% tip, that's where we're starting, okay. It's like that kind of an idea. So they'd be like, yeah, 1000 bucks for each person in your home, and actually 1000 bucks for me for coming out here to collect the money. And people were going into poverty because of this. So people were, this, this was, this was, he was partnering with the powers of abuse in the world. 
And so, that's what uh, Matthew is, 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 how he's thought about in, in his community. Now, in a bounded set group, where would Matthew be in the people of God? So, if he is a Jew, uh, a Jewish person by ethnicity, but he is, and his beliefs might be, you know, orthodox, but his behavior would put him way out here. The people hated tax collectors. Uh, one uh, commentator that I read said they were the most reviled of all people, of the Jewish people. And so he's very distant from the center. He's outside. He's excluded. But what happens when he meets Jesus? Let's look at chapter 9. It just very quickly what, what happens as he interacts with this person, Jesus. It says, Jesus saw a man named Matthew sitting at a tax office, and he said to him, follow me. And he got up and followed him. And so we see this, this pattern. Even though he's a person who's super far, far from Jesus, that Jesus continually does this. He calls out to people. He said, your, your life is headed in, in a direction away from me, but I invite you to come turn your life and follow me. And that's what happens to Matthew. And this pisses everybody off. The people who are all the insiders, the people who are the boundary keepers in that time were called the Pharisees. And they, they, they throw a huge fit. They're like, how could you dare invite this person? How could you even go and sit with these tax collectors and these sinners? And you know what Jesus says? He says, it's not those who need a doctor. Or it's not those who are well who need a doctor, but those who are sick. I didn't come to call the righteous, but to call sinners. And so Jesus completely changes things for Matthew. He says, in normal life, in a bounded set way of thinking, which is the way the world works, you're a person who's shunned. You're a person who's shamed and you're defined by these terrible things that you've done. But Jesus says, in a centered set way of thinking, your actions aren't the main thing that define you. Instead, what defines you is your relationship to me. Are you willing to put me at the center of your life and to come and follow me? And by doing that, he invites Matthew to be one of the 12 closest people to him in the entire world. He says, come and follow me. But now, let's look at a second name in, in Jesus' crew. And this name is Simon. Simon the Zealot. He's the other person who has like a, a little bit of a descriptor to his name. So if Matthew had assimilated, you know, as a tax collector into the Roman government, Simon had basically gone in exactly the opposite direction. The Zealots were a group of people who, um, they were like political activists. And they were bent on revolution and violently overthrowing the Roman government. They, you may have heard of this, they had a smaller, more radical group. As you know, any radical group, you know, you have like that other group that's the most radical of that group. Um, they're called the Sicarii. You may have heard of these people. And they had tiny little daggers and they would put them in their cloaks and they would go to public demonstrations and would, they would stab people who were Romans or Roman sympathizers. And then they would put the cloak back in their, uh, or put the dagger back in their cloak and just blend in with the rest of the crowd. Just imagine that. You go to you know, some sort of demonstration or whatever, and people are just getting stabbed. Things are going wild. That's what this group of people did. So they're kind of like, you know, in terms of, not everybody was like that, but the zealots, that's, that's the way that they thought. Let's overthrow the government. They're kind of maybe like the People's Party or like the Freedom Convoy. You know, one person said, if Matthew is mafia, uh, Simon is Robin Hood. That's how they thought of themselves, without the tights, you know. Or maybe with the tights. I wasn't there. I, I, to be honest, I don't really know. So... But Simon here is, is he's probably a guy, if you think about it in terms of, of uh, bounded and centered, he's probably somebody who's in the in-group. Not everybody agreed with what the zealots were doing, and definitely not the Sakari, but people were like, you're passionate about what we're passionate about, our people, our values. And so he's a person, you know, 
that's on exact opposite trajectory, exact opposite place of Jesus. But what does Jesus do? He takes a person, Simon the Zealot, he calls him and he says, come and follow me. And we could just imagine the problems that this would create. He says, we're going to come and follow me, but also this guy, Matthew, is going to come and follow me. We're going to be part of a crew together that's going to bring the kingdom of God. And we could just imagine the fights that would happen. And I can imagine someone like Simon saying this, you know, I can't be part of this group if Matthew's here. There's no way I would be a part of it. And Jesus says, as he said to the Pharisees, you know, I've come to call sinners. What you think about the Roman government, your political perspective is is important, but the most important thing I'm asking you to make, the most important thing about you, your allegiance to me, to put me in the center and let all those other things fade away. Come and follow me. And then I think, like, I might hear Simon saying, you know, well, what are you going to, you're going to ask Matthew to change, right? You're going to ask him to change his perspective, his views, the way that he acts. And in fact, the other Simon, later on in the story, asks Jesus this exact same thing. God's needling, Jesus is needling him about following him. And and Peter says, yeah, but what about this other guy? And Jesus says to him, what does it matter? What does it matter to you what I do with him? As for you, follow me. And see, Jesus is saying that my family will not be a bounded group of people. By including these two folks, Simon the Zealot and Matthew the tax collector, he's saying, I'm not setting up a bounded community here. Our identity will not be defined about who we're for and who we're against, which is the way the rest of the world works, that I won't be involved with those people. And all of us have them, whoever those people are. Instead, Jesus says, my community is defined by me your allegiance to me, your willingness to put me at the center and to follow me. And he wants to radically shape our lives around the center and follow him. Not look around us to see who doesn't look like us, but rather to center our lives on Jesus and to look who's turning their life in his direction too. You know, what about us? I think um, we create all sorts of different kind of boundaries, especially when it comes to church. And I think about this season, you know, many of us are coming to this church and there's this thing called the homogeneous unit principle. You come into this room and you look right away around and say, are there people who are... Oh, no, okay, maybe. Those people are as cool as me or whatever. I remember when we first moved to Vancouver and I asked my wife, I said, would you go to a Chinese church? I'm part Chinese. And she said, no. And I was like, why not? She's like, I'm not Chinese. I was like, ah. Right. Of course. All of us have, you know, we all have some of that in us, where we're coming to the room and we're like, oh, are these people like me? Right? And of course, I preached on it this summer. I think spiritual friendship is something we, we need to have, where you have someone in a community that, that you can just look across and say, oh, you too, I thought I was the only one. And you have something that draws you together, not only Jesus, but another thing that you love that just draws you together into spiritual friendship. And I think that's so important. But I also want to challenge us with the words of Jesus. He says, if you, if you just love those who love you, if you forgive those who forgive you, if you just hang out with those who are like you, you're, you're not really any different than anyone else. And Jesus, why, why would Jesus have to come and to give his life and to resurrect and leave the Holy Spirit? Why would the church have to be persecuted for that? There's no reason. You know, grace And the person of Jesus shine out from this place and this group of people most when we actually have people who are different than us. 
when our stories outside of these, these walls and outside of this community would pull us away from each other and instead the grace of Jesus holds us together. That is what it means to be the church. And so spiritual friendship is awesome and fantastic, but let's not let that be the guiding principle for what it means to be a church because Jesus showcases that it couldn't be. Okay, let's look at two more people really quickly here and then we'll close. Judas and Thomas. Now, uh, I say those two names, and for many of you, you're like, I know one thing about both of these guys, Judas and Thomas, that colors everything else. But I think their stories also illustrate the shortcomings of a bounded set way of thinking about church. Let's start by looking at Judas. So in this passage, Judas, along with these other folks, is one of the 12 people invited to be closest companions of Jesus. And he's also, we don't find it out in this passage, but in another passage, he's... And you don't... Okay, this is one thing. Don't make the untrustworthy person the treasurer, okay? That's free for you. It cost me $40,000. Okay? So, in a bounded set way of thinking, you know, where is Judas? Oh, he's totally in. He's invited into the core group of Jesus, right? He's the treasurer. He's super close. But what's the one thing that we know about Judas's life? He betrayed Jesus. He's super close to him, but his arrow is actually pointed away. In the moment that it matters, Judas shows that his story, that he's baptized into a completely different story here. This is what we talked about last week. He's baptized into the story of money. Money is actually at the center for him. Money is the most important thing. And so what he does is he takes the king of the universe, Jesus himself, and he puts a price on him. 30 pieces of silver. That's how much you're worth to me. If you remember the the N.T. Wright quote from last week, he says, those of us who worship money, we become defined by it, and we define everyone else and everything else by it. And that's exactly what Judas does. Jesus, you're worth this much. And he shows that he's baptized into a completely different story. And you know, I can't think of a better way to describe what's happened with a bunch of maybe recent celebrity type of Christians. You know, they're very, very close to Jesus. Maybe they're, or they look very close because they're, you know, pastors. They have a big platform. They're highly gifted people. But we see over that their arrows are pointed away. Money, sex, power. That's the thing that my life is actually pointed at. And Judith's story is a cautionary tale for all of us. Maybe we're not here. But maybe for some of us, we're here. We've been invited into the family of God. We're close. Our beliefs and our behaviors, you know, they generally fit in with the rest of what Christians believe, but we've, our hearts are captured by someone or something else. That's not Jesus. And Judas' story showcases why a centered set way of thinking about church and about Jesus is so important. Where you are does matter. It's an amazing privilege that Judas has that he is invited to the people of God, but direction matters. Are you going closer? I love the song that we sang earlier that Ali led us through. Into love deeper, deeper, deeper. There's always this call to go deeper, to learn more, and not to coast, but to follow and to take the hand of God. Let's lastly finish by looking at the last disciple this morning, Thomas. Again, Thomas was one of the 12 closest people to Jesus in the entire world at that time. But we know him for one thing, right? He doubted. And I can just imagine if Thomas was here today, he'd be like, look, you bake one cake, you're not a baker. You paint one painting, you're not a painter. But I doubted one time. 
for 2,000 years, this is all anyone knows about me, is I'm this dude who doubts all the time, right? Now, in a bounded set church, why is doubting so bad? It's because if you're an insider and you're doubting, or an outsider, what you're doing is you're, you're questioning the very foundation of what it means to be a Christian. You're questioning the boundaries that's been set up by whatever community it is, whatever culture that you're a part of. And that's dangerous because that's the thing that holds everybody together. That's why Thomas and Thomases in our world can be looked at with a lot of shame. It can be something where they're like, oh, that person, they're backsliding, they're doubting, they're questioning. Because it's very dangerous. What they're doing is questioning the, the one thing that holds us all together. But what about in a centered set way of thinking? You know, again, Thomas is invited into the family of God to be one of the closest people to Jesus. And this is the way that I look at it. Jesus gives him this initial call. He says, Thomas, follow me. And Thomas turns his life towards Jesus. But all of us, we have boundaries, even Thomas. We have boundaries that we carry into our relationship with God. And what will happen is, to the person of Jesus, will eventually hit these boundaries. For Thomas, that's what happens to him. He hits a boundary in his life. We say, I can't believe in Jesus anymore. The resurrected Jesus, this is just beyond me. It's beyond anything I can understand or make sense of. And so unless I'm able to put my, hand, my fingers through his hands, touch his side, I can't believe. He's reached the end of his boundaries. But what do we see Jesus doing in that passage, if you know it? Jesus meets Thomas here at the edge of reason. And he says, Thomas... I want to meet you. Come and follow me. And so, in a centered set way of thinking, maybe your questions, your doubts, your existential crises are not you walking away from faith, but actually the hand of God inviting you deeper and saying, you've got these boundaries set up, these ways that you limit me from being who I, who I am, from understanding my love, from, from interacting with the God of the universe, and so I invite you past them. And that's not always going to be easy. It's going to involve questioning. It's going to be difficult. But it's going to draw you deeper. It's going to allow you to see me more fully. And to send my light into the rest of the world. I love how Malcolm Geit, who's a poet who sometimes teaches at Regent, he describes Thomas this way. He calls him the courageous master of the awkward question. You spoke the words that others dared not say. And cut through their evasion and abstraction. O doubting Thomas, the father of my faith. See, in a Jesus-centered community, we don't have to make doubt what they make in an abounded set community, which is like the work of the devil, the most difficult thing, the worst thing that we need to walk away from. We also don't need to make it what it sometimes can be in fuzzy set Christianity, which is like, I'm just deconstructing, I'm just doubting, I can't know anything, which can just basically be, I don't want to commit. And again, I'm, I'm, I'm for those moments of, of difficulty and existential crisis. I've hit one like every three years. So it's just like, it's just part, part and parcel of life at this point in time. But instead, it can just be part, in a centered set faith, doubts and questions that we have can actually be part of drawing God drawing us closer to him, past the boundaries that we create, and drawing us closer to one another. That our doubts and our vulnerability and our honesty can actually pull us in to community. So, in closing, I, Hebert thought that this centered set way of thinking about the Christian community was the best way because it, it mirrored most closely what he thought Jesus was here to create. And I would agree. And this is where we want to go as a church into a centered set way of thinking. 
about Jesus, where we put him at the middle and we focus mostly on the direction that we're going. And it's going to get messy. I'll just be honest with you. Like, look at this diagram. It's going to get messy, okay? This community will get messy in a centered set way. It's not as clear as bounded. It's not as easy as fuzzy. And some people have and will choose bounded set communities or fuzzy set communities. That's what they're going for. And that's okay, but you know what? I can't think of anything better to give my life to in these next few years to work alongside a group of people who want to follow Jesus in this way. To try our very best to put him at the center. To worship him. To center ourselves on him. To make him the most important and heavy thing in our lives. And then to follow him. To learn how to listen to the voice of God calling us in the places in our lives. The voice of the Spirit saying, come and follow me. And to turn our lives towards him. To partner with him and with one another. That we might experience this unconditional love of a compassionate God. Who draws us to him no matter where we are. To be drawn into authentic relationship with one another. And to journey together in repentance, forgiveness, reorientation, and love.